MSW Media. They might be giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This ad was paid for with somebody else's money. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to episode 107 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, February 8th. 2023. I have a brief statement to read, and then a brief statement to make, and then some very exciting news. Here is the statement. Quote, after a few days of reflection, Dr. Gill and Andrew Torres have spoken and are in agreement to part ways with each other. Both parties believe that this is in their best interest moving forward. Unquote. The news is that Clean Up on Aisle 45 is now 100% owned by me and MSW Media. And I will be going forward with a new co-host, and that new co-host, who will be joining me either next week or the week after, will be Pete Struck. I'm very excited about this, excited to work with Pete. It's going to be amazing. And, by the way, this episode is going to be free. I am not going to start charging for episodes again until Pete's fully on board. So once that happens, um, I will let you know, but it's it's within the next week or two, and I'm very excited. I'm really, really um I'm really happy that Pete's going to do this show, and I think that you're going to really enjoy it. So I, first of all, want to thank our patrons. Um, I hope that you're sticking with us, and um, I want to also thank our new patrons who have joined us in this past week, and our new patrons are Jeffrey Lloyd Smith, John Santa Maria, Nerist, Just Jacob at Bikers Dice and Bars podcast, which sounds like a fucking amazing podcast, Kay, Colin Osborne, Milo Meadsong, A.J. Brantley, Joe, Mike DeMonte, Carrie Rolfs, and Charles Blacksmith. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. Uh, I'm excited about this new chapter. And, uh, we're, you know, we're going to be focusing on all the same stuff. We're going to get down into the weeds like we do. We're going to talk counterintelligence. We're going to talk, we're going to really, really start focusing on the uh, the Durham bar situation, which is uh, being currently investigated uh, by the Senate Intelligence Committee. And we know some House members on the Intel Committee, including uh, Representative Liu and Representative Dan Goldman, uh, have asked uh, the Inspector General Horowitz of the Department of Justice to look in 
to the Durham malfeasance. Now, we'll see what comes of that. I am not sure. Those IG reports can take a long time. But Pete and I will break all that down for you. And we're going to follow the absolute, uh, mm, what's the best way to put it? Shit show of the Jim Jordan subcommittee of the judiciary that's investigating the investigation that is now going to be under investigation. They have their first hearing coming up this Thursday. They're, the people that are going to be testifying are a former FBI agent who now hates, you know, the FBI and is a super Fox News contributor. And uh, also Chuck Grassley, Russia Ron Johnson, and Tulsi Gabbard. Mm. They're going to be the first witnesses in investigating the, the, the garland weaponization of the Department of Justice in the face of what Barr and Durham did. And I can't wait for members of the Intelligence Committee, like Dan Goldman, to question, to question these witnesses. Although, what the fuck do they know about it? I'm not even sure. Anyway, it's going to be awesome. But, uh, so today, freebie for you, I just wanted to um, read a couple of stories. Because, you know, on this podcast, we've been following the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation, quote-unquote, and we know the uh, new book by Pomerantz, who is one of the two prosecutors that were sent to help uh, Cy Vance and then eventually Alvin Bragg with the investigation into Donald Trump, uh, resigned after they couldn't get Bragg to indict Trump on what they thought were very indictable charges. They were looking at what we call in New York Little Rico, um, which is kind of like the federal racketeering, but for state, for the state of New York. It was designed to go after mob bosses. So let me read to you from uh, this article that came out after we recorded the previous episode from the New York Times. This is from the New York Times. It's from reporters Roshbaum, Protest, Bromwich, and Miko. came out on January 30th. The Manhattan DA's office began presenting evidence to a grand jury about Donald Trump's role in paying hush money to a porn star during his 2016 presidential campaign, laying the groundwork for potential criminal charges against the former president in the coming months. That's according to people with knowledge of the matter. Now, this is a, a class, I think it's class E felony, first degree class E felony, falsifying business documents. It carries up to a four-year prison term, but prison is not mandatory. It's a very, I don't know, It's it seems like a weak ending. And, and Paul Morant said this on his 60-minute thing. It would be a very weak ending to this entire affair. It feels almost contrived. Uh, prosecutors have been referring to this as the zombie case because it keeps dying and coming back to life. Uh, and, and I'm not saying it's not an important case to look into, but they have him on so many other things, so many other crimes, obvious crimes. New York Attorney General Tish James referred those crimes to the feds and to the IRS. So we need to know what the Southern District of New York is doing as well as the IRS. Now, Charles Reddig, you've heard me say, who is a was a Trump appointee as IRS commissioner. Uh, he was there in the IRS, uh, heading heading up the up the agency, and he actually makes a significant amount of money on Trump branded properties. So, so, kind of a huge conflict of interest. And the fact that he was part of that whole problem, you know, remember when the House Ways and Means Committee wanted to get Trump's taxes? It was to see if they could ascertain the effectiveness of the presidential audit program at the IRS. Well, it turns out he wasn't even audited except for one year, and they didn't really look at anything. But they sure did do heavy audits on Comey and McCabe. 
Oddly enough, this is all while Charles Reddick was in place. Well, Reddick, for some reason, was still the IRS commissioner up until, well, uh, what, two months ago. So perhaps the new person at the IRS will be interested in these crimes um, that were committed by Trump and Weisselberg and the Trump organization. But, you know, with Pomerantz looking into Little Rico, he was looking at the entire criminal enterprise, Trump University, the Trump Foundation, which was shuttered by New York Attorney General a couple years ago, and the Trump Organization and the 400 and some odd other uh, entities that uh, were kind of under the umbrella of the Trump Organization. Just a massive, sprawling investigation. And so, you know, I, I don't understand why they gave Weisselberg that sweetheart deal, but now he is at Rikers. And that might put a little more pressure on him to flip on Trump. You know, hey, uh, this is what Rikers looks like because we now know that Bragg is looking at prosecuting him for insurance fraud. And I put out, uh, and this was through the Daily Beans, I had an exclusive story over a year ago that members of the Zurich Insurance Agency had been testifying at the Manhattan DA's office. And nobody else picked that up, but that is uh, confirmed in this New York Times reporting. And that insurance fraud could be what Bragg uses to flip Weisselberg. Now, is he going to flip Weisselberg on the hush money payment only? Or is he going to flip Weisselberg on the other crimes that he testified about during the trial against the Trump organization itself, which, by the way, also has paid their $1.6 million fine, a drop in the bucket for them. So we're all sitting around wondering, why are you not going after Weisselberg for the full bore of his you know, 15-count indictment? Why are you giving him this deal so that he would testify against the Trump organization so that they would have to pay a $1.6 million fine? He stole more than that in taxes by himself. So I didn't really, and I still don't, quite understand why that happened, nor do I understand why Bragg decided to go against what Don and Pomerantz had been investigating for over a year and declined to prosecute Donald for the Little Rico statute and instead go after him for the hush money payment. Now, we'll see what ends up happening. I don't know if Southern District of New York is doing a full-on federal Rico investigation, uh, but uh, Tish James referred the same information to the Southern District of New York Department of Justice as they did to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. So it stand to reason if you've got not timid line prosecutors. So, I mean, we'll see how this ends up, but it says here the grand jury was recently impaneled and the beginning of witness testimony, which happened over a week ago, a week and a half ago now, uh, it represents a clear signal the district attorney is nearing a decision about whether to charge Trump. You generally don't start presenting evidence to a grand jury unless you're planning on indicting. And this, you know, whether it's a special grand jury or not, uh, is not in this particular article. But one of the witnesses is David Pecker. And we talked about this on our last bonus episode, which, by the way, I will do my best to put out alone until I have a new co-host. But it says here, as prosecutors prepare to reconstruct events surrounding the payment, the hush money payment for grand jurors, they have sought to interview several witnesses, including Dylan Howard, which is you, the editor of the National Enquirer, 
which David Pecker owned, and two employees at Trump's company, probably McConnie and that other accountant, that were questioned and, and were witnesses in the trial against the Trump organization. Oh, yeah, Deborah Tarasoff is her name. They have not yet testified before the grand jury, at least when this article came out a week ago. They've also begun contacting officials from Trump's 2016 campaign. And in a sign that they want to corroborate these witness accounts, the prosecutors recently subpoenaed phone records and other documents that might shed light on the episode. Now, nearly five years after it happened, and I've talked about the statute of limitations a bit too. It got told for about eight months by Cuomo when he was governor because of COVID in 2020. And that was all statute statutes of limitations in New York. And this is, you know, Manhattan DA's New York. It's state. So the statute of limitations isn't up until uh, most people are saying around May, April, maybe. Depends on when that last payment was made. The one that we know about, the one that we've seen the check for was in August of 20, uh, 2017, which would put it in August of 2022. And then you add eight months to that, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April. But I have talked to other people with knowledge of the matter who spoke on the condition of anonymity that there was actually a payment made in late 20 or in late 2018, which would put would give us another year. Now, this particular grand jury is set to sit for six months. I don't know if it's going to take that long to return an indictment on this one felony. Uh, uh, there also could be a campaign finance violation felony as well, a New York State one. But I'm very interested to see what the IRS and the Southern District of New York are doing or not doing for that matter. Did Barr write up a declination to prosecute OLC that screws the whole thing up for anybody who wanted to prosecute in the future? I don't know. Southern District of New York is known as the Sovereign District, so we'll have to see. And then a little bit about this book. And and this, again, is an Andrew Weissman column um, from, uh, when I say this again, it's from the, from the Post, uh, and it's Andrew Weissman. And Andrew writes, in February 2022, Pomerantz was a lead attorney in the Manhattan DA, abruptly resigned, frustration, he cited, over what he saw as the office's flagging commitment to the inquiry. Pomerantz, renowned former prosecutor and defense lawyer, had been recruited in February of 2021 by Cy Vance to assist the investigation. And in his letter, his resignation letter, he asserted that Alvin Bragg, the new DA, had suspended indefinitely the investigation, and he didn't want to become a passive participant in what I believe to be a grave failure of justice, is what he said. Pomerantz has now expanded his views in the book People versus Trump, Donald Trump, an inside account. However, in the time between Pomerantz's resignation and the book's publication, Bragg's investigation of Trump has taken another turn. The DA's office has impaneled a grand jury and begun hearing evidence in a sharp ramping of its, of its inquiry into the Stormy Daniels case. As the office pushes forward on work that could lead to criminal charges against Trump, which, by the way, wouldn't bar him from running for office, Bragg has publicly raised concerns that Pomerantz's book could jeopardize any subsequent prosecution. It's in this climate that Pomerantz's book lands next week. That's this week for us. His intent to reveal what happened within the DA's office um, during his year there uh, frames the question, why had the investigation, which by all accounts had been gaining steam and seemed likely to lead to criminal charges against the former president, come to a sudden stop? His assessment, Weissman said, of the inner workings of the DA's office is brutal. Pomerantz contends no criminal case emerged against Trump because the DA's team of career prosecutors was not up to the task. 
He paints an unflattering portrait of the career assistant district attorneys, particularly the many who disagreed with his own assessment of the potential criminal case. Quote, they spoke about the need to follow the evidence, but to my knowledge, they'd not actually looked at much of it. Now, in his telling, uh, the prosecutors come across as faint-hearted, lacking energy, lacking enthusiasm, and relentlessly negative. The team was faced with the possible first-of-its-kind prosecution of a former president, and Pomerantz writes, the prosecutors were perhaps a bit fearful about bringing charges against Trump, given his well-known penchant for public retaliation. They seem to me to be exactly the kind of traditional, let's do things the way we always have prosecutors that kept the district attorney's office from being resourceful and successful in white-collar cases. Now, Pomerantz reveals Vance had privately complained many times to him, quote, about the slow-moving and gun-shy culture in the office. That was Vance. Pomerantz believed the office needed a chief of staff, a drill sergeant, to keep the team moving. But out of the hundreds of assistant district attorneys, there was no suitable candidate from within the office. Pomerantz is unfailingly polite about Vance, but if his criticisms generally uh, about the work of the office are accurate, then the state of the long-running investigation is on Vance, Weissman writes, not Bragg, who was on the job for less than two months. But Bragg is scathingly faulted for not promptly greenlighting charges. So this is a, a di- little bit of a different take here from Weissman. That meeting occurred when Bragg was the DA attorney-elect, but inexplicably no one from his transition team was invited, and the meeting did not yield a consensus that the case was strong and needed to be brought, with various participants raising serious legal and factual concerns. It's difficult to know exactly what transpired, as Pomerantz appeared to fudge on the degree of consensus by saying the outside group seemed to agree, and the sense of the group seemed to be clear. But there's no statement acknowledging an agreement that the case was solid and ready to be charged. And Pomerantz's senior colleague walked away from the meeting, saying the conversation left him on the fence. Now, Bragg's decision not to pull the trigger on a case against Trump, which was widely criticized in the press, actually may have been courageous, Weissman writes, not cowardly or inept, since he hardly had anything to gain and a lot to lose, politically. Indeed, Pomerantz says he reminded Bragg of the political implications for the office that gave the young new DA... Uh, what some may find a brash ultimatum. He wanted an immediate up or down decision. And Pomerantz told Bragg that the news media would learn of his resignation very quickly, and that if the press also learned that Cy Vance had reached a different judgment, the result would not be good for the office. Pomerantz's resignation letter did soon land in the press. Now, Pomerantz changes tone in a thoughtful late chapter and contemplates the issues that confronted Bragg and Vance, He lucidly describes the conundrum faced by them and other prosecutors contemplating criminal charges against Trump. Why, he asks, had he and Vance and others been convinced that criminal charges should be brought, while others, serious and experienced lawyers, had reached the opposite conclusion? The answer focuses on the standard to be applied in bringing charges against former president of the U.S. Some have a view that if you shoot for the king, you best not miss, as many say, and that an acquittal would rend the fabric of the country perhaps irreparably. Pomerantz eloquently lays out the counter-argument that a president should be held to at least the same standard as anyone else, and that the rule of law demands it, even if a conviction is far from certain. So, a lot of different opinions going on out there. A lot of different ways that this can land. A lot of different things to take into consideration. It still doesn't explain to me the pullback on Weisselberg. I hope that we find out. All right, so I will be back next week 
and I will be doing a little bonus episode, like I said, uh, this weekend. It'll probably be by myself uh, while we wait for Pete to get onboarded. Uh, but again, patrons, you are not going to pay for these shows until we have that new co-host, Pete Strzok, on board. I'm very excited about it, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to – I'm glad that, I, that we have something that we can look forward to uh, in the face of, of uh, what everybody's been through. So thank you so much, and uh, I will be here. I will be here. I'm not going anywhere, and Pete Strzok will be with me. Thanks so much. I've been Allison Gill, and this has been Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Breaking news. Do, 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 do. Let me hear it. It's just been handed to me. Our new co-host on Clean Up on Aisle 45 will be Pete Struck. So I'm very much looking forward to moving, uh, moving forward on this show with Pete. And uh, again, I appreciate all of you for sticking with me. And uh, it's been a tough weekend, as you can imagine, for a lot of people. Um, but I am very excited about the future of this show and the future of MSW Media Pods. And I just wanted to thank you again. And uh, patrons, again, you're going to get these episodes for free until everybody's fully on board and those official episodes start coming out. So enjoy a little break. And uh, if you want to sign up to be a patron, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E 45-P-O-D. And I'm going to actually go back and, and put this news in the beginning of the show. So you're going to hear it twice. This is the second time you're hearing it, but it's the first time I knew about it. So time travel. <laughs> Everybody, I've been Allison Gill. We'll see you next week on Clean Up on Aisle 45. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So, the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And, and this, this is, is How We, we Win. win.
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.